0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, or your Scripture journals, and chapter 1. Luke and chapter 1. This is part 3 of our new series through the Gospel of Luke uh, that lines up with Advent, and then after Advent we will continue our journey through this Gospel. So last week we talked about what's called the Annunciation of John the Baptist, and today we will look at what's called the Annunciation of Jesus Christ. And so we will be in verses 26 through 38 in our time together this morning. Luke 1, 26 through 38. If you got it, say, I got it. All right. Uh, it will also be behind me on the screen in my translation that you can follow along there as well. So let's go ahead and read this together. Luke and chapter 1, starting in verse 26. God's Word says, And may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. When I say the word renaissance, I wonder what the first things are you think of. For most people, I think what probably comes to mind are a handful of names. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Donatello, who, besides fighting crime from their sewer lair with their giant rat leader, were renowned sculptors. Painters and inventors, please Lord, I hope you got that reference. (laughs) Uh, a A Renaissance artist you may never heard of, however, is Fra Angelico, who was incredibly talented and hailed by many now as then as a truly gifted and brilliant artist. My absolute favorite work by him is something I want to draw your attention to, and we're going to put that on the screen so you can see it too. This is one of Fra Angelico's paintings on the Annunciation, the subject, of course, of this morning's sermon. Now, packed into this one painting is astonishing meaning and detail. Let me point out a couple uh, things to you. Your attention is first surely drawn to Gabriel and Mary. Gabriel is clothed in glory and has a golden halo around him, along with a pink garment symbolizing his heavenly office. He's looking at Mary, pointing one finger, you see, to her, and the other to God, and he, as he speaks the words of Luke 1 to her, while Mary is symbolized as receiving the words from Gabriel with a humble posture. She is wearing red, the color of blood and earth to symbolize humanity. There's a dove, do you see it? Above Mary to depict the Holy Spirit who will overshadow her and miraculously make her pregnant with the Christ child. God the Father, I don't know if you can see... From this distance, God the Father is pictured in the stone, looking down upon all that is taking place as he orchestrated, and the words of Mary are upside down because they are for God to see, so they are oriented to his view. In the top left corner, you'll notice a dark area with Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. Both of their faces betray their shame and worry over what they have done by plunging the world into darkness and sin. This shows us why this exchange between Gabriel and Mary is needed, right? Why she will become pregnant through the Holy Spirit with the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who will reverse the curse and do something they could not do, obey perfectly. Jesus will be the second Adam. He will be the truer and better and founder and head of a new humanity to bring about redemption to those under the curse of Adam. And while Eve leaves the garden in shame for her sin... Due to her desiring her own will over that of the will of God, what do we have with Mary in the foreground? Her saying, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to his will. And behind Gabriel, do you notice what do we have? We have the curtain of the temple being opened because the child Mary will uh, bear will grow up to die on behalf of sinful and alienated humanity, which will rend the curtain and give access to the Father in ways not seen since Eden. Interestingly enough, this isn't even the only picture of the Annunciation that Angelico painted. There were multiple other versions, but why? Why so many different portraits of the same scene? And why did Angelico put so many symbols into this painting of a conversation in a simple Nazarene house between Gabriel and Mary? It's because Angelico knew that this one conversation that spans 12 verses in Luke 1, is the most important conversation in human history up to this point. For in this conversation is the announcement to a poor Galilean teenager that the world will never be the same again. This, is, this here is the most earth-shattering, cataclysmic news that anyone has ever received. And what is that news? It is the news that God intends to remake the world and reconcile sinners to himself, not through a surrogate, not through a delegate, not through a hireling, but through God himself becoming man in order to get to man because man is unable to get to him. Unable, to to enable people to enter into fellowship with him in the here and now and into eternity. Is there any bigger news in the whole universe than that? Angelico knew this. He saw more, more in here than meets the eye. And I hope in our time together, we will too. So four points in our time together. Four things we need to see in this scene, okay? Number one, we see that God works in unexpected ways. Point number one, we see that God works in unexpected ways. Well, we're meant to see straight away is the similarities and differences between this scene and the scene that preceded it, okay? Obviously, both scenes are about important birth announcements, right, given to a parent by Gabriel, and both are announcements of the miraculous. John will be born to barren parents who are past childbearing years. Jesus will be born to a virgin through the Holy Spirit. Both improbable, both miraculous, both need the intervention of God to take place. However, there are differences. Consider the settings, Okay, contrast the settings. The announcement of John to Zechariah was given to, at a public service to a priest in Jerusalem at the holiest place possible, right? So even though Zechariah was one of 18,000 priests, the fact remains he was what? A priest. And the announcement was given while he was in the temple in Jerusalem. Up to this point in Israel's history, there's no holier place than this, right? No, no, no more important city, then Jerusalem. And Zechariah is a well-respected priest of the Lord. What is the setting of the announcement of Christ? It's an unexpected place. Did you notice how Luke frames this? He says this happened in the sixth month. This is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. What's, what's with the added information about the location of of Nazareth, it's because Luke knows his audience likely would not be familiar with Nazareth. Like, they probably didn't know where it was, and they probably never heard of it at all. It wasn't a city of any significance to speak of. It was not a major city. People did not go for trade or business. In fact, trade routes were designed to purposefully avoid Nazareth. Not only did people not go there for anything, but those who did know about it purposefully tried to avoid it or go around it. So Luke must give them larger geographical details in order to give them an idea where this insignificant and avoidable place is. So using me, for example, I grew up in Aurora, Colorado. And until recent years, many people outside of Colorado hadn't really heard of it. The only people who really knew where it was were people who have traveled to the Denver area or were from there. So when people used to ask me where I was from, I wouldn't just say Aurora. I'd say, Aurora, it's a city by Denver. (laughs) Because I knew if I just said Aurora, they'd be like, where's that? So I just anticipated them not knowing, you know what I mean? Or when I go to denominational conventions or meetings or school in a different state, and people ask where I pastor. When I say Cordille, guess what? Many of them are like, huh? I have to say something like, it's about an hour south of Macon. (laughs) Or it's about two hours south of Atlanta, unless it's a bad day, and then it's seven hours south of Atlanta, Right. This is what Luke is doing with Nazareth. His readers don't know where this is, right? They know where Galilee is. They know this region of Galilee. They've heard of that, but not Nazareth. But to further the unexpectedness of the announcement of Christ, we see that it is given to who? See, John's announcement was given to a male priest, yes, who had the high honor of burning incense in the temple, something not every priest got to do in their lifetime. Jesus' birth announcement? To a poor girl at the very bottom of the social ladder, who is likely no older than 15 or 16 and maybe as young as 12, in her small Nazarene house. Not a temple, not a synagogue, not a holy place at all. There's a big difference between these two announcements, isn't there? Could, Could the people and the settings be any different? But why? I mean, if, we're, if we were writing a story about a great king being born to save the whole world, this is not how we are writing the story. If you were writing a story about a great hero who would vanquish the worst of foes, you are not introducing him as being from the worst town to an unwed teenage mother. We're writing stories of people who have influence coming from people who have influence. Because that's what makes sense to us. Like, like think about modern-day superheroes. Heroes are not typically from dingy and unimportant places. You take Superman, for example. Where's he from? You know where he's from? A planet of people who are just like him. You know that? Just a planet full of people who have superhuman powers. This this man is not an underdog, right? He's born super. Iron Man's a rich kid who could afford to build those sweet suits, right? Right? That Thor is a god. Even Batman, who I love, is from a wealthy and influential family, which is why he can afford all those wonderful toys, right? point is, we typically do not have a category for a hero who comes from nothing. And we surely do not have a category for God condescending to actively choose to come into the world in the worst place. So why choose all of this when Jesus could have come from a wealthy family, or a ruling family, or an important family in the world's eyes? Why be born to a working-class couple from an insignificant town, and why give the announcement to a young woman who couldn't even testify in court because women were viewed as low and their testimony couldn't be believed? What's God saying through this? Listen to Daryl Bach. He says, The tone of the setting of Jesus' birth matches the tone of his ministry. The great God of heaven sends the gift of salvation to humans in a serene, unadorned package of simplicity. This shows the great lengths God goes in order to identify with the most humble people of the world. I love this. He says, God may be the God of the universe, but he is no elitist. Or listen to reformer, Martin Luther. He said, if Christ had arrived with trumpets and lain in a cradle of gold, his birth would have been a splendid affair, but it would not comfort me. He was rather to lay in the lap of a poor maiden and be thought of little significance in the eyes of the world. Now I can come to him. Now he reveals himself to be miserable, but upon his return on that day when he will oppose the high and mighty, it will be different. Now he comes to the poor who need a savior, but then he will come as judge against those who are persecuting him now. See, if Jesus came through the means that we would likely have chosen, his birth would not be good news to the lowly, would it? Whereas we are inclined to esteem wealth and status and worldly importance even in the church, God means to esteem the lowly because it is the lowly who are closest to admitting their need. The reason we will see as we venture through Luke that he gives a hard time to the wealth, to wealthy and the richest, isn't because money is inherently bad. He doesn't think that. It's because he knows that wealth and status make it harder for people to admit their desperate need for something outside of themselves for rescue. Isn't that true? The poor, the miserable, the marginalized, they are closer to admitting need because they recognize more quickly their true state. Do you see? Listen to Bach again. He said, the humble setting of Jesus' birth not only reveals the nature of God's plan, it also reveals the character of God's heart. God loves those who are humble in spirit. The birth announcement is telling us from the beginning that God works through unexpected means. And something we'll see over and over and over again in this gospel. Not only is this announcement of the Savior of the world given to a poor girl in a bad town, but he'll be born in a small town in a stable laid in a feeding trough, grow up to be virtually homeless, call a group of ragamuffins to follow him, it die as the enemy of the state and resurrect three days later out of a borrowed tomb. What in that is expected? What in that is how you or I would write this story? We are meant to see that God works unexpectedly and that we cannot box in the God of all things in a way that we could have him all figured out. But his revelation of himself should tell us that We should work through the means he calls us to, not through the means that make sense to us or the world. Luke is showing us that God came from the least and the lost, and only through humility can we come to salvation. Those who esteem themselves as positionally better than the humble Savior, those who are unwilling to stoop and be low, they need not apply, at least not until they see themselves for who they really are, which is a desperate sinner in need of outside rescue that only the God-man, Jesus Christ, can provide. Further, Luke is showing us that we ought to pursue God's kingdom in God's way. Even if it costs. Even if it doesn't make sense to the world. Even if we think through our intellect and might that we have a better way. He is asking us if the God of all things is willing to come to the world at all. Let alone these means, what is off the table for you to serve and follow him? What can he call us to that we could say that's too much, too far, too servile? Tell me. It's nothing. Luke thinks there shouldn't be anything at all that's off the table that he could ask us because look at who he is. And look at what he's willing to do to get to you. Do you feel that way too? But next, point number two. We're meant to see God's initiating grace. God's initiating grace. Everything to this point in Luke's gospel points us to this, right? God is the one who takes the initiative in man's salvation. Yes, Clearly, and, and we saw this in a big way over and over again in our study in Exodus, didn't we? He always takes the initiative, always. The very fact that Gabriel is announcing that God is coming into the world screams that God is the one who takes the steps to pursue wayward humanity. Further, he's the one who does all the work in salvation. Man does nothing. All man can do when God comes with his offer of rescue is either choose to submit to his king or reject him. But even Gabriel's words to Mary show that she is a recipient of God's grace. Don't you see? Not a bestower of it. Verse 28, he addresses her as what? Favored one. And he declares that God is presently with her. Then Mary is perplexed, of course, by Gabriel's greeting. So he says like he did to Zechariah, don't be afraid or stop fearing. Then we have again, what does he repeat? You have found favor with God. Mary has found favor with God, not because she has done anything particularly noble or righteous, nor through her own merit, but simply because God has chosen to give her grace. God has chosen her as a special recipient and vessel of grace and a special object of his favor to be used mightily by him through her simple obedience and response. Again, note that Gabriel doesn't make a request. Have you ever noticed that? Does he make any requests? (coughs) this grace is freely bestowed on Mary. He doesn't say, you do this and I'll do this. He just bestows grace. And she is pictured as a a picture of those who receive God's grace on the basis of his kind initiative. She is favored. Why? Here's the circular. Because the Lord is with her. Why is the Lord with her? Because he decided to be with her. Do you see? (laughs) Why is she the one whom the Savior of the world will be born? Because God has chosen her for that task. She didn't ask for this. She didn't earn this. But God has come to her and chose her and called her, and she will be, according to verse 42 from Elizabeth, the most blessed among women who has ever lived, all because of initiating grace. But I want you to consider something else. Why is the virgin birth necessary? This is the announcement of, that the angel... Is this not the announcement the angel makes? That, that she will have a baby through the Holy Spirit, right? Through a virgin birth. So is the virgin birth of Christ necessary at all, do you think? Must we affirm that Jesus was born of a virgin? Do you think? You guys can say stuff. (laughs) Three years, you guys should know by now, it's okay. You know, nearly every year, uh, New York Times col- columnist Nicholas Kristof has a column where he asks a pastor or a professor or other religious people questions about the doctrine of Christmas or Easter. And in the one that I came across the other day, uh, he was interviewing this lady, Serene Jones, and she's the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. Okay, don't send your kids to this seminary. Uh, I shouldn't have been surprised. At her answers because Union has a certain reputation of theological liberalism and doing kooky things like confessing to plants and asking for forgiveness in chapel. They did this, by the way. But Christoph asked her about the virgin birth of Jesus. And this is what she said I find the virgin birth a bizarre claim. She says it has nothing to do with Jesus' message. This is someone who considers themselves a Christian. Or Or take, take Andrew Lincoln, who wrote an entire book on why it doesn't matter if we believe in the virgin birth, or take Thomas Jefferson, who disliked the bits in the gospel that insisted on the miraculous, like the virgin birth, and literally took a penknife to his New Testament to publish his own version of the Bible without all that buzz-killing, miraculous stuff. Are all those OK? Does the virgin birth matter? Must we be orthodox in our belief about the virgin birth and affirm, I don't know, 2,000 years of teaching of the church? Well, apart from the fact that the Bible says that this is how the second person of the Trinity came into the world, and thus, to deny it would be to say that the Bible is lying, therefore, why believe any of it at all? Besides that, one of the most profound things that the virgin birth tells us is that God is taking the initiative to save the world. If Jesus was a mere man... And there was no virgin birth. If he was just born from the sexual union of Joseph and Mary, then what? Then that means that he would have come about through the initiative of people, right? It would mean a couple decided to come together and have a child, not by God's initiative, but by the human parents. Further, it takes away the triune nature of God's initiating grace because what does verse 35 say? It says the, the, the Father chose Mary and the Holy Spirit will overshadow her to conceive and bring about the Son. Without the Holy Spirit being the one who causes her to conceive, the Trinity's work in this rescue project is taken away from the start. This announcement that Jesus will be conceived and born through the womb of a virgin tells us, contrary to what Jones and others have said, an incredibly important truth about Jesus and his message, which is that... The initiative and power are all of God. Which is an apt picture of God's saving grace in general. It teaches that salvation is by God's act, not human effort. We're meant to be amazed that the Creator God, you st- the story of Christmas, we've heard it a million times, but do not miss the enormity of this, okay? The Creator God, are you with me so far? Would go to these lengths... To get to undeserving sinners like you and me. And to receive this grace, we must see our deep need. Yes? We must see that we are not good, that we are not righteous, that we cannot pursue, look for, or find God. And even if we could, we couldn't satisfy the requirements to reconcile to Him or earn His favor. That's how deep our sin and lostness is. But without admitting that, there is no salvation. Do you see? Those who don't see themselves in trouble have no need for rescue. Isn't that fair to say? Those who don't see that they are drowning have no need for saving. That admittance is the only way to receive this grace being offered through Christ and his initiative. I love Tim Keller's illustration. I use it every Christmas season. It is what he said. He said, Christmas is about receiving presents, but consider how challenging it is to receive certain kinds of gifts. Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend, and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper, and you find it is another book from another friend called Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so much, you are in a sense admitting, for indeed, I am fat and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive, because to do so is to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. There's never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. To accept the true Christmas gift, you have to admit you're a sinner. You need to be saved by grace. Praise God, he makes us to see our need through the Holy Spirit, and he shows us the truths that the Creator God really did come and join his deity to humanity through the virgin womb of Mary. He really did that to get to you. Do you guys see this? Because he takes the initiative every time because that's how deep your sin is, but it's also meant to show you how deeply you are loved. Don't you see? What we see next is connected to this, point number three. We see... Who Gabriel says Mary's son will be. we well, you see who Gabriel says Mary's son will be. You see in 30 through 33, Gabriel gives some descriptors of Jesus' characteristics, of which there are five. Did you see them? The last two are are virtually synonymous. Look at your text. This is what he says. <coughs> Jesus will be one, unqualifiedly great. Two, the son of the most high. Three, the occupier of the throne of David. Four, the only king who reigns forever over a kingdom, five, that has no end. You see them? All of this language is regal, kingly language, isn't it? Here is something fundamental to the theology of Luke. The kingdom rule of the promised Davidic son is here, which means the kingdom has come. And this kingdom is not like other kingdoms and this king is not like other kings thus he is worthy of your supreme allegiance over and against every other claimant for loyalty look at him (laughs) he said to be great isn't he Is great john said john is said to be great also in verse 15 but there's a qualifier for john isn't there 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 we're told that he will be great before the lord but here we're told jesus will be what It's great. No qualifier. Why? Because Jesus' greatness is meant to be contrasted not only with John's, but all of humanity. The rest of humanity is not great. Jesus, though, he's what? Come on. (laughs) He is great. He's the only one who is unqualifiedly great. John is great, but his greatness is qualified by before the Lord. Whoever you want to compare this king to, They fall infinitely short. We may throw around the word great when talking about all manner of things, but only one is great, and that's this king. The rest of the descriptors bear this out, don't they? I mean, what's the next descriptor? He's the son of the Most High. Again, compare this with John. Is John the son of Most High? I just, I want you to know for the rest of the time, I want you guys to say stuff back, okay? Is John the son of the Most High? No, in fact, when John is born, Zechariah will say in verse 76 that John will be the prophet of the Most High. Not the son, but a prophet. Jesus, he's no mere prophet. He's the dearly loved son of the Most High and the only one who has the right to that title. Now check this out, check this out, all right? Gabriel says here that Jesus is the son of the Most High and then in verse 35 he says that Jesus is the son of God, right? Now I want you to jump Keep your thumb there and jump to Luke 3 and go to verse 23. And I want you to look quickly at the genealogy of Jesus, okay? And once you get there, I just want you to scan it, all right? Just scan from thirty three twenty three down. And you see all of these people, right? <coughs> son of this fella, son of that fella, right? Son of this other dude. But then you get to the end and look at verse 38. Adam is the son of what? Son of Enos, son of Seth, the son of Adam, who is? Son of God. All right, peep this, all right? In one we we're told Jesus is the son of God, and in 3.38, we're told Adam is the son of God. So according to Luke, two people could say they were the son of God, yes? Because they have no human origin. God miraculously created them. Now, Gabriel says he will be given a rule and a kingdom. Who else was given a rule? and a kingdom, and authority over the whole earth. Was it not Adam? But what did Adam do with his rule? He ruined it. He failed. He botched it. His failure introduced sin and alienation into the world. But combine this title, Son of God, with the fact that Jesus comes to earth through a virgin birth, which means that he has no earthly father. He has no origins from a father, but has origins with God alone. Who else can say that? Only Adam. So what is Luke showing us? Do you guys see it? He's showing us that Jesus is the second Adam who is given to rule and and a kingdom. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam will not botch his rule. Whereas the first Adam brought death, the second Adam brings life. Whereas Adam's rule as God's viceroy was short and came to an end, this kingdom, this king never will cease to rule. Do you see it? Like the first Adam, this Adam will start a new people and a new creation from every tribe and tongue and peoples of the earth, and he will rule forever and not fall or fail like the first Adam did. That's good news because that's exactly what we need in order to reverse what Adam introduced. His kingdom will be unending. And just in case Mary misses that part the first time, Gabriel repeats it with a slightly different phrasing. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. What is the duration of Jesus' kingdom? It's forever. That means that no one and nothing, yes, do you agree with me, if his kingdom is forever, that means that no one and nothing can ever stop him or bring it down. You know, in A.D. 135, there was a Roman emperor, his name was Hadrian. And he found out that there was a cave in Bethlehem Where Christians believe that their king, Jesus, was born. And so, you know what Hadrian did? He didn't like that. He didn't like they were worshiping a rival king. So, he went and he had an altar built in that cave for the Greek god Adonis. So, essentially, Hadrian converted Jesus' birthplace into an idol shrine. Hadrian was was hoping that this would wipe out any lingering association with the memory of Jesus among those who lived in the region. He thought this tactic would work to get people to forget Jesus and end his rivaling him as king. Well, guess who's dead and who's alive? Guess whose kingdom still continues and whose kingdom has fallen? Hadrian is very dead. And he has ceased to rule, and his kingdom he ruled over is but a memory. Jesus' kingdom will never end. His reign will never stop. His church will never fail. Everyone who has tried to stop him is very dead or will be dead in the near future. And Jesus is doing just fine. You know, for the last century, it's been popular for people to say, like, blank, this or that is the greatest threat to the gospel. Have you heard that before? Blank is the greatest threat to the, you can fill in the blank, whatever you wish, and this has been a tactic to get Christians riled up for decades. But can I give you some comfort, my friend? There is no threat to the gospel. It cannot be threatened. It cannot be stopped. It cannot end because the gospel is about Jesus, and Jesus ain't going nowhere, and neither is his kingdom. Everyone or anything that has ever threatened the gospel has failed. Do we realize who we're talking about here? Gabriel says this king and his kingdom will last forever. Do you know what that means? Forever. It's not hyperbole, okay? forever, and it will have no end. You tell me. What other kingdom can make that claim? Is there a nation on the planet who could say it will go on Forever. Tell me, what other ruler can make the claim that his or her reign will last forever? Surely some in their arrogance believe that to be the case, but who could truly say the reign will be forevermore? You know, in verse 5, Luke tells us this happened during the reign of Herod. You know what his title was? The Great. Well, Gabriel said, Jesus is the Great. Who's truly great? Where's Herod now? He's dead. Not so great. (laughs) Every Caesar who've ever lived, were they? Dead. Presidents, they all stop ruling at some point, and they all die eventually. The empire of Rome itself was considered great and mighty and unending. Where is it now? Countries and powers throughout the centuries have risen and become great and now are a blip on the timeline of history. Kingdoms rise and fall all the time. This king, his rule is forever and ever and ever his kingdom never-ending Is this a special kind of king no other king is like this king that mary will give birth to never before and never again will be born of woman a king like this king and oh by the way where will his earthly lineage come from The insignificant backwater town of Nazareth, a place most people alive in the first century couldn't find on a map. And if they could, they'd be finding the quickest route around it. That's who this king is. Simultaneously, the only great one. The king of every single inch of every single galaxy in the universe, the only ruler who will reign forever and humbly taking on the form of a baby in the womb of a virgin mother from a small and unimportant town in dusty Palestine. Tell me, is this king worthy of your devotion and unending allegiance? Is he worthy of your ceaseless praise and adoration? Is he worthy of your reckless abandon? Because here's what we need to see in our fourth and final point. (laughs) We need to see how to respond. We see how to respond to who he is and his initiating grace. How to respond to who he is and his initiating grace. How does Mary respond to this cataclysmic, life altering, universe changing news? Well, first she asks, how will this be? Right? She says, I'm a virgin. And we noted last week this is different than what Zechariah said when he said, How shall I know this for me and my wife are old? Mary's question is a genuine one. She truly wants to know how she can conceive. Zechariah says, How will I know? Mary says, How can this be? That's a big difference, okay? He's questioning God's ability to make it happen. Mary's just curious, Zacharias wanted a sign because of his unbelief, and he got one in the form of punishment, right? Being rendered mutant death. Mary didn't even ask for a sign, but she gets one in in her barren cousin being pregnant. Why? Because, says Gabriel, nothing is impossible with God. What's impossible with God? What can God not accomplish? He can do whatever he wants. What restrictions are there on God's ability? Or we can say it like this. Rather than demanding to see, Mary simply states her inability to see. Mary isn't questioning God's ability. She just doesn't know how this can happen, which is why Gabriel, in he a rebuke her. He explains that this will happen through the Holy Spirit, overshadowing her, and the child will be conceived by the Spirit and will have divine origins as the unique Son of God. After this, what Mary says, I don't want you to miss this, is so remarkable. I think we understate Mary's response to this news. We we could go so far as to say with her response that Mary's response is paradigmatic of the proper response to God and his message of grace. One commentator I read said that her response is perhaps the best definition of faith in the Bible. What does she say? Could we put it up there? (laughs) What's Mary say? She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you realize what this means for her? This is costly obedience, isn't it? What will people think of her? How could she explain this to people? What what will Joseph think of her? What will her family think of her? How will she be treated by people? Won't she be known for the rest of her life as a woman who was pregnant while betrothed? Won't people whisper and gossip and stare at her as she passes? How could she explain it if she tells people I'm pregnant because miraculous conception brought forth by the Holy Spirit to introduce the long-awaited Messiah to the world? They're going to think she's nuts, (laughs) right? Or a liar. This could very well cost her family relationships. It could cost her her betrothal. The people in the community might alienate her or marginalize her or gossip about her, run her out of town, or worse, even want to stone her to death. But what does she say to Gabriel? Behold, I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And no second guessing. No need to deliberate. No need to, let me just go talk about it with my friends and family. Just unabashed obedience and submission no matter the cost. She knows it will cost her. But she says, like her son will say the night before he is executed for the sins of the world. Not my will, but God's will be done. Isn't that incredible? Daryl Bach says this of Mary's response. He says, Mary reflects the proper response of anyone who has been called by God with no credentials other than availability and a responsive heart. She is the Lord's servant, and so are we if we know him. He continues, God's servants have the right attitude and perspective to accomplish great things for him if they say, use me as you will. I will not refrain from serving because I do not feel qualified or usable. Behind the availability to service is an attitude that trusts God for direction and enable it. Mary knows that with God's grace behind her, she could do what God asks. Remember, she brings nothing on her resume other than her availability and willingness to serve the Lord. Mary responds to God with submission and obedience, and so should we. We see God for who he is. We see the lengths at which he will go to get to undeserving sinners and rebels. We see that the God who spoke... All things into existence came and took the form of a baby. Is there anything more vulnerable than that? In the greatest act of humility imaginable, we see this that this God man died in our place, in our stead, instead of us. We see that he has risen and rules as king over a kingdom that has no end. We should respond exactly the same way as Mary. And guess what? It will cost and it will be uncomfortable. Obedience will run counter to what we want. It will change our plans for our lives. It will cause you to be different than your unbelieving friends and cultural Christian peers. But you tell me, will it be worth it? Is it worth it to obey this king? Now look, look what we're talking about here. <laughs> Do you realize the enormity of what is happening in these verses? That God himself... God has come in flesh to save you and bring you near and transform you and help you live as you were created and give you the honor of being part of his story. What on earth could he ask of you that is too much? He moved heaven and earth to get to you. What could it cost for you to get more of him and obey him truly? Jesus is not meant to be your co-pilot or your assistant, your cheerleader, your life coach, or simply an additive to your life to help you live out your dreams. He is the greatest of all kings, and he is savior, and he calls for unabashed submission. There's a big difference between utterly sovereign king and life coach, isn't there? Now, Tim Keller tells of a time he was at a conference, and this is what the speaker said. They said, If the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, was no more than the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance from earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 75 feet high. The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of papers over 300 miles high. Keep in mind that there are more galaxies than we can number. There are more, it seems, than dust specks in the air or grain of sand on the seashore. Now, if Jesus Christ holds all this together with just a word of his power, is he the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? The simple logic shattered my resistance to what Mary is doing, he said. Yes, if he really is like that, how can I treat him as consultant rather than supreme Lord? And he adds this, becoming a Christian is not like signing up for a gym. It is not a living well program that will help you flourish and realize your potential. Christianity is not another vendor supplying spiritual services you engage in as long as it meets your need at a reasonable cost. Christian faith is a non, not a negotiation, but a surrender. It means to take the hands off your life. This is what Mary is doing, isn't it? Utterly. With these words, with this posture, she is completely releasing control over her life and destiny and placing it in the Lord's hand. She knows it will be costly, but she knows whose hands her destiny rests. What about you? Have you experienced the grace of God through knowing the person of Jesus and have you thus surrendered to him truly? Ask this in your heart, okay? There's no need for fakery or pretense there, is there? Can people observe your life and tell that it's be, been rearranged by this incarnate God? What is it costing you to follow him and know him and get more of him? If the answer is nothing, can we say we're truly following him? The story of God incarnate breaking into humanity to bring forth an everlasting upside-down kingdom should change us, shouldn't it? The fact that he has reversed the curse, that he has moved heaven and earth to get to you, the fact that he has highly esteemed the poor and marginalized and oppressed and neglected should utterly alter how we see the world and treat people. In other words, we shouldn't be able to think of the truths of Christmas and leave unchanged and unaffected. These are earth-shattering truths here. So let me ask, what is God calling you to do? Have you been putting off a kingdom assignment because of fear? Have you put off service, sacrifice, unity, love, obedience, and truth because it will cost you more than you're willing to pay? Some of this story should remind us is that God keeps his promises. Shouldn't it? And he has promised you the grace necessary to do the kingdom work. But will you do it in response to this cataclysmic truce of Christmas? Mary shows us the proper response to this earth-shattering news, doesn't she? Make today the day you again or for the first time do and say what Mary did. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word that I trust and will follow no matter what it costs. This is the proper response to grace. And we can follow truly because the same Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary to bring about the incarnation of the Savior of the world now indwells you if you're a Christian. Making the statement of verse 37, nothing is impossible with God as true today for you as when Gabriel said it over 2,000 years ago.